Amen. Um, before we begin, I just want to encourage you to get registered and to vote. Um, a lot hangs in the balance. You know, there was a time in history where, uh, you know, as believers, uh, we didn't have any say. And God has given us this nation. And we have the opportunity to speak. And in particular, there are a lot of godly issues that our voice needs to be heard on. But the right to life, unborn children. And uh, the fact that uh, you know we are in a place where the opportunity to change the Supreme Court even further is uh, you know, in our disposal really can't encourage you enough to, you know, today, Tuesday, you can go and register that day and vote that day. And, uh, you know, the determination is within the hands and the heart of the Lord. So, you know, the outcome is his, but he's given us the opportunity to participate in that. So take the proactive opportunity to, um, be involved and vote. The voter guides that we have out back by the back door and out front are available. Pick one up. Inform yourself as to what the position of each of the candidates is. See there uh, what lines up with a godly understanding of the world around you and what does not. Genesis 24. So again, let's pray. Father, again, we, we do pray. Having had this discussion, uh, that you would influence the outcome of this election, that you would guide uh, people to the polls, that uh, people would vote for as godly a candidate as they could. Lord, we know some of these people are incredibly ungodly, and yet simultaneously they hold uh, your views in their behavior, in their politics, and in their voting. Uh, we just lift the whole of our country up to you and ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 24, it says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please, Put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. A servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came, but Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land, he will send his angel before you. I think that's very significant in the passage. And you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. 
So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. So it seems this is the servant Eliezer from 60 years earlier when uh, we were in Genesis 15, verse 2, as uh, we saw Eliezer described there. Uh, It's possible that it's a different servant, but being that it declares here that it's his oldest servant and we don't hear any change, we can assume that, which also lends some sort of spiritual application because the name Eliezer implies the Holy Spirit. It is the Comforter, which we know the Holy Spirit in the New Testament as the Comforter. So the images that we see here, the symbols we see here in Eliezer's work of going to find a bride for the Son, when you consider the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, bringing us to Jesus Christ the Son, this is really quite a chapter in the whole of the Scripture. So as we move forward, just a number of things to examine. Uh, We'll see this putting the hand under the thigh with Jacob and Joseph later in Genesis 47, verse 12. It was a cultural thing of the day, and there were many different ways that people would agree upon matters and shake hands and greeting and kiss on the left cheek and the right cheek. And some of those things could be mistaken for simple greetings or simple agreements. You're not going to accidentally put your hand underneath another man's thigh. You know, that's that's the sort of thing that if anyone witnesses that, they're going to say, what in the world were you doing? And then the explanation that this was a solemn oath, that this was something that held that type of gravity in it, that there was a physical contact that was so intimate it couldn't have taken place by accident. Eliezer couldn't brush off his obligations to this and say, oh, I just didn't completely understand what we were talking about. The gravity of the conversation and the physical interaction between these two men is such that nobody's going to forget the occasion. The participants in it or the witnesses to it are going to say this was a thing of serious countenance. Now, this has nothing to do with interracial marriage. That has been falsely proposed from passages like this on a number of occasions. God is forbidding interspiritual marriage. You might want to make note of that, because even if your heart's settled on that issue, you might have conversations with someone that thinks God is somehow racist or promoting racism. You know, the Scripture, the Lord tells us in the scripture there's only one race, the human race. There there aren't multiple races. I find it interesting now that, you know, people are starting to get DNA tests done. You can, you know, mail away and have your culture examined. And, you know, I have a, a friend who's, you know, African American, and then the test comes back, and, uh, you know, he's as black and dark complected as you can imagine. He's less than 15% African. The rest is all European. 
Okay, you know, so many cultural things we think of as being so staunchly in one direction, our ignorance has led the human race to make all kinds of stupid assumptions. God does not forbid inter interracial marriage under any circumstances. Okay, the Moabites forbidden to marry to the Israelites, and then Ruth is introduced to the nation and she ends up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Okay, What the Lord is forbidding is the interspiritual marriage. Supportive verses, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, Nor shall you make marriages with the Canaanites. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods so the anger of the lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly because their hearts would be turned away to other gods nothing to do with their race it has everything to do with their worship and we see the same thing in the new testament paul speaking in second corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness. So back in Genesis 24, looking at verse 10, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Now, uh, the city of Nahor, a couple of things about that. One, uh, it's 500 miles from where they currently are to Nahor in a straight line. The trade route that they most assuredly took is an, a winding arch of 900 miles. So this is not just some quick adventure of, hey, let's just go over that next hilltop and we'll run into our family. This is a matter of a very serious excursion that they're undertaking. And within this, it says that all of his master's goods were in his hands. The implication is that he took portions and samples of everything that was Abraham's for the, the trip. And also we're going to see as gifts. There are men that travel with him. He's not traveling alone. So this is probably quite an entourage of people who are going from Abraham back to Nahor. Two of Abraham's family relatives are named Nahor, which is why this region is known as such. He made his camel uh, kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Very often, especially at this time in this culture, you can still find it in certain places where women go out to gather water together. It's just to have company and fellowship and to help one another in drawing uh, the water and also for safety, uh, safety in numbers, to have more than one person when they go. For integrity, too, the, the safety of integrity. You know, no one could say, if you have a group of people with you, no one could say later that you had misbehaved in any way because there were witnesses to your conduct while you were there. So this is the common practice. In verse 12, 
this is, we assume Eliezer said, O Lord God of my master Abraham. Now, there are some indications that Eliezer himself is a believer throughout this. But he's on this task for his master. So when he's praying to the God of my master, he's just encapsulating the mission that he's been sent on. God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water. The daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now, generally speaking, circumstances alone can be a dangerous way to discern God's will. Uh, we have a way of ignoring circumstances that speak against our desires. You know, there might be many negative things, and everyone else in our environment can see them, but we somehow overlook them uh, within that. And we look for the things that support our desired outcome. So you don't want to take too much stock in this. I, I like the fact two portions one, he sets out the criteria beforehand. He doesn't come into the experience and as the things are unfolding, start pointing out, this must be from God, that must be from God, that must be from God. He sets out the criteria beforehand so that there's a very big challenge to this being fulfilled. You know, one, that she would respond to a man and offer him a drink, you know, upon his request. And then two, that she would, without any further prompting, then offer to, you know, give these camels all of their water. This is a tremendous task that she's offering. This is going to take a very long time. There's a tremendous amount of physical exertion involved in giving all of these camels their water. So the thought that that's going to actually take place is really quite remarkable. So he sets the standard beforehand, and he sets the bar high so that if it does unfold, he can't just point at, you know, circumstance and happenstance. Lord God, if it, she shows up and she's right-handed, you know what I'm saying? He doesn't throw out generic 50-50 options for God. You know, he, he puts things in a place that are difficult. Secondly, he makes that statement about that I may know. Uh, there is so much of this attitude about feeling. You know, I just really feel like this is God's will. You talk to people and, and it's amazing how much they say that. I, I just The more I thought about it, the more I felt like it was God's will. The more I felt like this, the more I began to feel like that. 
Yeah. The more I felt like this was going the way I wanted it to, then the more I felt like I should get involved. Feelings are very, very dangerous to follow that way. You know, what Eliezer sets out is a nearly impossible standard of accomplishment, and then he sets it in the place of logic and reason, that I may know these things are your will. That's a very important criteria for us to all understand. I, I like the fact that uh, you know, as this starts out in verse 15, it happened before he had finished speaking that, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on his shoulder. Isaiah 65, verse 24, says, It shall come to pass that before you call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Uh, that is in reference to those who are following the will of the Lord. That, that when we are submitted to the Lord, and we are daily in His Word, and we are filled with His Holy Spirit, and we are being led by His will, that as we pray, we see that God is right there answering. Isn't it a great thing when the need arises, and you pray, and immediately you see the Lord is answering? It's even more spectacular when as you're praying, the prayer is being answered and you realize later that before you began praying, the Lord was sending the answer to you. That's always a wonderful thing to know that you're that inside God's will, that he's carrying you through the circumstance. It's in contrast, it's a very dangerous thing, as we said, to set out our own motivations, our own feelings and start putting, you know, sort of softball hits for ourselves that are very easily accomplished, self-fulfilling prophecies, you know, putting them in place. God is not above being challenged. He, he warns us against being tested, right? Not, we don't want to tempt God. But that's, that's under the idea of what we see Satan doing with Jesus. If, if you're, in fact, the Messiah, throw yourself off the temple. You know, and you think, well, how would that have a practical application here? I, I have witnessed many people who walk into a relationship that I can clearly see is not from the Lord, and they say, I'm just trusting God. in this." Yeah, they don't want to come to church right now. They're not really a Christian, but they said, you know, they, they, they're really serious about thinking about you know, going with me some point in, you know, in future circumstances trying to fulfill, I want someone in my life, so I'm going to create a circumstance that forces God into the situation. And that's a very dangerous prospect. Very dangerous prospect to create circumstances like that. If you know, if you especially here we're talking about a relationship. If you have that mindset, you know, I would strongly encourage you to come talk to me because you wouldn't believe I can, I can just give you a handful of people to talk to who have done that very thing. They, they have chosen to be with someone that doesn't know the Lord. Out of the loneliness in their heart and their life, they're like, oh yeah, I'll just fulfill this. 
they said that, you know, if we got married, then they, they would probably start coming to church with me. It was a really, really painful experience to go through realizing that the person you've convinced yourself is the one from the Lord is in fact not ever going to be aligned with the Lord and you're going to have to live with that problem for the rest of your life or until, God forbid, that relationship ends in a painful separation. So many people have gone through these things, waiting upon the Lord, letting Him fulfill these things. While He was praying, this begins to unfold. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her picture, and came up. There are less than a dozen occasions in the Scripture where the Scripture records for us that the woman was very beautiful. Uh, you can uh, do the research on that on your own. The reason I bring it up is it's actually a secondary circumstance here. It, it just sort of happens in the text because here it's not actually a criteria at all, is it? As Eliezer comes to the circumstance, what he's praying about is that she be led of the Lord and then responsive to God's servant. That, that's it. Right? She, she could have uh, shown up and been as plain Jane as possible, and yet she has been led there of the Lord and is responding to the servant of the Lord. Th those are the requirements. You don't, you don't want to read, oh, she was very beautiful to behold and think, surely that's the criteria we're looking for here for Isaac. It's not the case at all. She's beautiful, but it's not the circumstance. The servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your picture. He ran to her. Uh, prayer is no substitute for action. right? There are a lot of people who somehow get the perception that prayer is more holy than action. Don't get me wrong. Prayer is as equal to importance as action, but many will keep themselves in prayer and never move to action. The God, is called, God has called us to both things, to respond and to work, right? Faith without deeds is dead. Faith without works is dead. We have to couple these things together and be men, of women, men and women of both prayer and action. Right? If Eliezer just sits here and says, well, I've prayed, and she's supposed to offer me a drink, so you know, just fully respond. She's not going to. He moves to her and asks for the drink. So she said, drink, my Lord. Then she quickly let down her pitcher to her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough ran back to the well to draw water and drew for all his camels the man wondering at her remained silent so as to know whether the lord 
had made his journey prosperous or not. And now if you're thinking, surely by now, he knows God has made his journey prosperous. There's a tremendous task that she's in the middle of accomplishing. And he doesn't interrupt it. He waits for the completion. He doesn't say, well, she arrived here and I asked for the drink and she gave me the drink and she immediately offered to water the camels. And look, she's begun watering the camels. There's a lot of work left to be done and Eliezer stands at a distance and waits for the completion of the work. I think that's significant. Uh, so many people respond with that you know, great excitement in the beginning and then quickly fade off. There, there isn't a completion of the circumstance. We, we want to be people individually that follow through. We also want to see that in others who begin at the task. So, just wondering at her, he remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels of gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please. Is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. The bride that has been chosen is given gifts even before the wedding. We are given gifts by the Lord even before we get to see him. Notice as I said, he lets her finish the work, and the gifts are a sign of the great wealth the father has in store for her when she comes home to the son. 24-26, then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord, an indication that he himself is a believer. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Praise is such a natural response to God's goodness and provision. It's always interesting to me to watch people who are desperately in need and they might even be in prayer, but then when the provision and answer arrives, they shift over to a mindset like that's perfectly natural. Like it's just a thing of the world. You know, well, yeah, you know, I was desperate, but, you know, I didn't have any work at the time. And I was praying for all I was worth. And, you know, I thought things might turn out terrible. But then I got work. So, you know, no need to be panicked. Quickly the mind moves from God as being the provider to the things of the earth being the source of provision. 
you know, the company that might hire us at a better rate, uh, the work contract that might finally come through that we've longed for for all this time. Those things are not the provision. I, I think probably every one of us has had enough life experience to know that those things can arrive and your heart can be filled with happiness and you turn around moments later and they've evaporated. God is the one who provides for us. And Eliezer is very aware of that. I like how it says in this being on the move or on the way, as it's stated here, brought these fulfillments about. He, he didn't stay in one place. He didn't stay at home. You, you know, that old statement, God doesn't steer a parked car. You've you got to actually be doing the things and the work and the will of the Lord in order to see those things being accomplished in your life. You know, uh, so many have made statements over the years, you know, down through the centuries of, oh, I wish God had just, you know, work done, been in my life when they put no effort forward themselves. 24, 28. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelet on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels, water to wash his feet, and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, and he said, I will not eat until I have told about my errand. And he spoke on, and he said, speak on, rather, excuse me. So uh, interesting, at this point, Rebekah's father, uh, Bethuel, is alive. We see that in Genesis 24, verse 50, but Laban seems to be in charge. For whatever reason, he's been given or assumed that role. It might just be his assertive personality, or there might be something in Bethuel's uh, circumstance that doesn't allow him to sort of be the patriarch of the family. Laban is serving in that role at this point, or, uh, her uncle or her brother. Um, Laban's eyes seem to be on the riches, as you look at this, when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists. So he seems to be focused on the wealth and on the money within the circumstance. And as time goes by, that seems to become more apparent. I like uh, Eliezer's uh, literal physical approach, but also the symbol and the imagery in this moment here of how he's not interested in uh, the food and the provision and the moment until the work and the will of the Lord is done. There's a, a really uh, parallel passage with Jesus in uh, John where uh, he's been ministering to the woman at the well. I, I, I love the, the parallels between these because here's Eliezer at the well, and he's having this conversation, and Jesus at the well, 
at the, with a woman, uh, the Samaritan woman, and, and ministering to her. And when the apostles come back to Jesus, uh, they were all concerned about lunch. They were concerned about their stomachs. They were concerned about the things of the earth. Then this interaction in John 4, verse 31, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Uh, we're seeing that throughout this passage, not to just be on the mission, but to complete the mission. Uh, you see Eliezer is very focused on that. You, you see Rebecca, as she begins in the circumstance, isn't just content to give him a drink and then you know give some water. She goes all the way through watering the camels until none of them is desiring to drink anymore. She quenches everyone's thirst, which obviously has that parallel to Jesus in John 4 of drinking of the living water and thirsting no more. So just a great parallel there of the food and what sustains a person and the work and ministry of the Lord. 24.34, so he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great. So this is like news to the family. You know, nearly a thousand miles of travel. Uh, some things certainly have come through to them over the years, and they've become aware. We see that, uh, you know, he's uh, Abraham's getting news about his family, and that's part of the reason that he sent Eliezer on this trip. But this is one of the first occasions we see that direct line of communication coming from Abraham's household back to uh, the family of Nahor and uh, here to Laban. So, you know, my, my master has become great. He's become a man of influence. He's uh, given him flocks, speaking of the Lord, given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. Uh, this theme of accomplishing the work is probably uh, coupled with the fact that the one of the most common words in this entire uh, chapter is master. It occurs 22 times in uh, the chapter. And it, it speaks of the Lord and it speaks of Abraham. If you think about Jesus in the New Testament and in his ministry, he has that moment where the centurion sends word and tells Jesus, please don't come to my household. I, I, I know I've asked you to take care of the individual who's sick, but my house is not ready to receive you as a Jew, is what he's saying. It's ceremonially, if you came here, uh, I'm, I'm a Gentile. My household is, is Gentile. Uh, you, you couldn't even enter my home. So, so don't, don't bother coming. But I also understand authority. I understand your authority. If you say the word, 
that my servant will be made well. And Jesus stops everything in the moment. He, he, he tells everyone to pay attention to what's going on there. And he even declares, I've not seen, even in all of Israel, faith that's as great as this. This man understands authority. Master. Work. Mission. Servant. Completion. This, this is the core of this message right here what we see happening in the life of Eliezer. He understands the authority which, which has to be coupled with obedience. How many times have we talked about the condition of the church today and the way that it wants a Savior, but it doesn't want a Master? So many people do not want to have submission be part of their Christian faith. We have this fierce independence and rebellion that is inbred in the American heart and mind. That's not the existence of a believer. The existence of a believer is knowing the authorities that are over us and being in submission to them. Namely, Jesus Christ. Because if we're in submission to Jesus Christ, then we're going to be in submission to all other subsequent authorities. You know, people within Christianity often, you know, try to divert over, you know, men, authority, church, family, wives, submission. I love to point out the fact that Paul says just previous to that, that we should be in submission to one another. If I'm in submission to Christ, then I am in submission to my wife. She has authority over me and over my body, over my behavior. I don't get to just act how I want to and go around with a chip on my shoulder and behave in any sinful regard. Mastery, submission, completion of the mission. Eliezer's not his own. He's a bondservant of another. This is also our position to him was given all that the Father has, the authority that is there. John chapter 5, there are a few verses beginning at verse 22. Jesus speaking says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Jesus Christ is the one that we are to be submitted to. Jesus Christ is the one that bears all authority. You know, when this is saying here of the Son, to him has been given all that he has. That that authority that is going to be handed down to Isaac is going to become the owned possession of Rebekah. She, being one with her husband, is going to have access and advantage to all of these things. We, 
coupled to Jesus Christ, bear all of that same fruitfulness and authority in our lives. Right now, it's more like the nose ring and the bracelets. We, we have the signs of His richness in our lives. And we have the Holy Spirit. We have the gifts and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And eventually, when Jesus Christ rules and reigns, our glory will be revealed, which is His glory, His glory within us. 24 verse 37, Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. Follow me, But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I walk, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. And you shall take a wife for my son from my family and from my father's house. Now, I just want to point out that in the beginning of this chapter, as that conversation went on between Abraham and Eliezer, Abraham didn't spend a huge amount of time trying to convince Eliezer that it was absolutely going to happen. He simply said to him, if it doesn't happen, then you're released from your oath. Now Eliezer is experiencing the fulfillment of those things, and now he's recanting it, or excuse me, not recanting but recounting it simply from the positive aspects of, my, my master told me this was going to take place because an angel of the Lord would go before me and prepare these circumstances. He doesn't even have to, you know, recall that it wouldn't take place. Behold, I will I stand by the well. Uh, excuse me. Uh, you will be clear, he says, of this oath when you arrive among my family, for if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. And this day I came to the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way in which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water, and I say to her, Please give me a little uh, water from your picture to drink. And she says to me, Drink, and I will draw for you your camels also. Let there be, uh, let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. But before I finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder. And she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, Please, let me drink. And she made haste to let her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels to drink also. Then I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrist, and bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. But if not, and if not, tell me. Then I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, and this thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. 
Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. So this family is saying yes or no to the Lord, not to the Lord's servant. Remember that the next time that you're trying to lead someone to the Lord, trying to share your faith with friends or family or relatives, and they don't seem to be responding, or they're responding in a very negative way. Right? We share, and sometimes there's anger and aggression and resistance. It isn't you that they're rejecting. Uh, they're rejecting the Lord in those circumstances. They're rejecting God who's working in you and working through you to bring this message to the family. This family recognizes it and just says, uh, we can't argue against the Lord. You know, They greeted them in the Lord in the beginning of this passage. When Eliezer arrived, they greeted him in the Lord. Now they're responding positively to the Lord. 24 verse 52, it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard these words, that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Uh, this is uh, customary uh, that uh, the bride would be given uh, great gifts, but also that the family would receive gifts. Now, the offering of dowry within the culture was meant to take care of the family so that if there was dishonor, amongst the family who was taking this young woman as bride, if she was divorced or rejected by the man and sent back home, then the wealth that had enriched the family through the dowry was intended for her. She would, she would come home to provision. This is like more than prenuptial agreement. This is like paying alimony in advance. You're not going to get this back. The family's going to be enriched by you giving to them. And if, if you don't honor your commitments when she goes home, this is intended to take care of her. A very cultural thing within the day. I say that because, you know, within our culture, there's so much divorce that goes on. And then in divorces, things get so ugly. It's just heartbreaking to witness. God doesn't intend divorce, but even within separations and divorce, you can see here God is is making provision for that person through the separation. God God does not want people to just be you know used and thrown away. They they have to be cared for. They have to be you know equitable in their response. It's it's a painful, hurtful thing to have to see people go through. 24, verse 54. Then they arose in the morning, and he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. I can't remember the last time I thought of ten days as a few days, but anyway, you know, this, this is their whole approach to things. After that, she may go. And he said to them, Do not hinder me. Since the Lord has prospered my way, send me away 
so that I may go to my master. So they said, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. There's an old statement. If the world can't stop you, it will at least try to slow you down. If, if you are departing from the world, if you are following the Lord, if you are going the way of the Lord's will in your life, if, if the world, the devil, your flesh can't put a complete stop to it and divert you away from it, back into the world or things of sinfulness, it'll at least try to slow you down. It'll put opportunities and circumstances and commitments in your way so that you at least feel like you've got to take care of those things as more important than the things of the Lord. What we see Rebecca doing here is shunning those things and moving on. 24 verse 59, So they sent away Rebecca, their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may, be, may you become the mother of thousands, of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Literally, the places of authority, right? How many times have we talked about you know, the, the gates of the city is like town hall? You know, that's, that's the place where the regional authorities rule over an area from the gates of the city. And so may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them, have authority over them, they're saying. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the men. So the servants took Rebekah and departed. Keeping in mind, there's 900 miles of camel ride ahead of them. Rebecca probably had a lot of questions for Eliezer along the way, particularly about Isaac, right, ladies? I mean, you know, at, at first, you know, wealth and excitement and, you know, this is great and what a wonderful opportunity. And now she's thinking, I probably should have asked what this guy looks like. And, and, and what does he behave like? And, you know, what are, and so 900 miles, that, that's not just a few days. There's a lot of questions that probably go on throughout this trip. You know, this is a long journey, is it not? Until the finish line through life, and there are many questions that come up. Eliezer, being that symbol and image of the Holy Spirit, Jesus gave us that assurance in John chapter 14, verse 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. We have the comfort and the guidance and the provision of the Holy Spirit. 24, verse 62, Now Isaac came from the way of Ber-Lehe-Roi, and he dwelt in the south. Notice this. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. It's so interesting that this is the first mention of Isaac since the sacrificial moment on top of Mount Moriah. The very next mention we hear of him personally is where he goes out to meditate in the field in the evening. He's a man of deep faith. And he lifted up his eyes and looked. And there the camels were coming. 
Then Rebekah lifted her eyes. When she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel, for she said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself, which is the customary way to greet someone you don't know in this time and in this culture. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, marriage ceremony. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This wonderful picture of our relationship with the Lord. The way that Jesus has been given a bride by the Father. The church is the bride of Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The, the desire of the Scripture, the desire of the Holy Spirit, Eliezer, the image of the Holy Spirit, is to bring, to deliver the bride in her purity, which our purity is the purity of Christ, right? We may have been wretched sinners. Christ washes us clean, makes us beautiful. Maybe we're hideous, you know, in some spiritual way, or hideous, you know, in our appearance. Who knows what each one of us is? And in the end, Christ has accepted us. We are beautiful beyond measure in His eyes. It says in Luke chapter 15, verse 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons, just persons, who need no repentance. The purification, the presentation of sinners to the Lord, the bride of Christ, is a thing that the Lord takes great joy in. We, filled with the Holy Spirit, even if each one of us in this room has surrendered. We can play that part of Eliezer. And I think we've all had experiences along the way where we're just in conversation with someone and we realize God has orchestrated this moment. I, I have been brought here on this great journey to stand here and share the gospel, to invite this person into the marriage of the Lamb, to, to become the bride of Christ. And don't miss those opportunities. Those opportunities come by being surrendered to the Lord. And what you'll find is day to day, He's directing you to where the well is, where the person is gathered, and you'll watch and see as they surrender themselves to the riches of Christ. Amen? Well, let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are so grateful for Your love and your work in our lives, and we pray and ask that you would minister to us that as we spend this time together in fellowship, that your Spirit would be upon each one of us, that we would know how to speak to one another, that we would be patient and we would be kind, that our hearts would be knit together with yours and with the body and the family of Christ that is here. 
Help us to minister to one another and prepare one another to be filled with the Spirit. A servant such as Eliezer who could invite people into your kingdom. Into the riches that are your Spirit. Work in our hearts. Work in our lives as we have these moments left here together today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Stay in fellowship as long as you want to.